Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Is there a place for ritual and pageantry in the Christian life? That is the question Steve and I will be getting behind today on this 63rd episode of the Out of the Question podcast. So, my good friend, does the Bible have anything to say about ritual and pageantry? Well, certainly so. From the very first chapter of the Bible, we have God decorating and designing a world that is visible, full of smells and sights, all the way till the very end. In Revelation, you have a picture of a decorated universe, God's pageantry in creation and recreation, undeniable. So this is an interesting conversation because what we are really discussing behind this question is, are these traditions of ritual in our culture today able to be justified by the scriptural text, or are they Roman Catholic accretions that we need to purge the church of? And like so many other things, law being one of them, when people argue against God's law, whether or not they know it, they're arguing for somebody else's law or some other law. So if we're saying, and I, and I know you've heard this and I've heard this as well, we don't like rituals, we don't like liturgy because they're just so empty and they don't mean anything and Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. And what we do is we, do, we demean those things that we're saying it's not. But if we don't have a Christian ritual, if we don't have a Christian liturgy, if we don't have Christian law, then we're defaulting to something else, right? That's right. And it's very important that Christians remember that mantra that you can't beat something with nothing. When you take away the Christian standard, the Christian identity, you take away the authority of the Bible to speak in one area of life, you don't get a vacuum of information, you get the other side advancing onto Christian territory and redefining the terms according to their dictionaries and vocabulary. So let's start with rituals and people saying, I'm so against rituals. When you think about it, we have birthday rituals. Happy birthday is a song that is sung at the ritual of celebrating somebody's birth. We have marriage rituals. We have diet rituals. We have health rituals. People have all sorts of things that they do, except somehow or other, if a church has a ritual, then somehow or other, that's wrong. They have rituals. And when we say ritual, we're talking about a a tradition that we do maybe once a month or once a year. We have rituals for non-important things um, like Sometimes I I put my shoes on, left foot, right foot. We have this ritual that if we do it in the wrong order, it kind of disorients us. But we also have, like you talk about, birthdays, weddings. Inside of those ceremonies, there are these ritualized things that taken out of the context of the ritual might be meaningless, right? So you may kiss the bride. All of these different rituals that by themselves our culture has said are rather benign or, or meaningless, but inside a certain context the bride's veil coming back and the lips meeting for the first time, that ritual becomes something significant and unique. And even within the context of everyday life, 
Okay, I've been married now for almost 44 years. My husband and I have a ritual when he goes off to work or a ritual what he says to me first thing in the morning. You know, I get to hear how beautiful I am. Well, do I think that everybody would think the same thing he does? No, I'm glad he does. But you know what? If we have a disagreement and he doesn't say it, that ritual, I notice the absence of that ritual. So these things all have value or lack of value within a context. And I think so much of this no ritual, no pageantry goes back to the elimination of Christianity from life as opposed to people being more holy than they were before. That's right. Or the elimination of ritual is removing a social identity away from Christianity. Rituals, while they can be performed by yourself, become meaningful when they're done in the context of a community, right? So a wedding ritual is powerful because two people come in front of a minister and witnesses, their family, their friends. This ritual becomes important because of what it represents, not just to the individual, but to the families, to the the greater community. And so when the temptation of our culture is to individualize everything, including our faith, make it just about what's happening between my ears or in my personal heart, ritual attacks that. Ritual tears down this idea that it's just me and my Bible and says, you belong to a bigger commission. You belong to a kingdom. You belong to a family. You've been adopted into something that's bigger than just you. And you are required then to be a part of this ritualistic society and to dance these ceremonial and traditional dances that help bind us together for a common purpose. And so when we lose the sense of pageantry, of making something a big deal, which is a big deal, and we say that it doesn't really mean anything, all you have to do is look around and see it's been replaced by a humanistic substitute that it's not like suddenly now there is no pageantry there there is nothing being celebrated but it doesn't have its focus as jesus christ all right now we're talking a lot about the the wedding ceremony but you see that even with weddings today generations before ours could say my wedding and my vows were the identical vows of my grandparents my great-grandparents you know we did the same thing we wore white dresses we walked down the aisle there's a certain traditional identity to those rituals. Um, but today it's kind of been mocked. You know, the, the idea of having a minister lead it, the idea of having your, your wedding inside of a church, the idea of going through traditional liturgy of what you're actually vowing and promising, of writing your own vows rather than having the church give the commandments of marriage to you are all undermining uh, the identity or the cohesiveness of marriage. I don't think it's a coincidence that when the ritual and the structure, the formality and the pageantry are sucked out of the wedding liturgy, that we get marriages that are devoid of having any traditional connection to a cohesive uh, Christian identity of marriage. When we don't say to a people getting married, pronounce you man and wife, to, to have and to hold uh, till death do you part, going through these traditional promises and covenantal vows It's no wonder that the folks who are missing these landmarks, these posts, these stakes in the ground that define what marriage is, have gradually moved away from a traditional understanding of marriage. So take the vestments, and I know you are in the Anglican tradition, 
And so part of the worship that's done in an Anglican church, and not just reserved to an Anglican church, includes the person who's officiating, putting on a vestment, he's putting on the office, very much like a judge puts on his vestments when he goes in to adjudicate in a court of law. And very much so like the academy does when people are being honored with graduation and the faculty comes in and their robes designate who they are. So people aren't really averse to such things, but in most Christian circles, if somebody has a robe or the people who are officiating, that's looked at as somehow unusual and improper, yet in the quote-unquote secular areas of life, they don't think it's improper at all. And I've never met a high school or college or master's or doctor graduate who says, oh, I don't like the robe. It's taking away from the (laughs) significance of this event. You know, what's really interesting is that all of those robes have Christian origins. And uh, Dr. Rushdie talks about the very early Christian origins of robes. And he mentions it in the context of what you just said, of judges and priests. I can't remember if it's the Foundations of Social Order book, but one of those mentions how the early church had established its own courts. You can see this in St. Paul's writings, where they refused to submit to unjust Roman courts. And throughout the first few hundred years of the church, you get uh, elders and overseers of the church who are mediating out the laws of Moses upon the people of the New Covenant Church. And they establish a just system. And when Rome becomes Christianized under the emperor. He takes the courts, which up until this time were not really trustworthy or reliable. They would bow reverence to foreign gods. They would arbitrate based on superstitions. They would follow the culture and milieu of their day. And the emperor took away their offices, abolished these Roman courts, and gave their offices to the Christian overseers. Right. So overnight, the emperor changes the courts and justices of Rome from being pagan, worshiping false gods and false laws, to following just Christian standards. And one of the ways that he marked this judicial change is he took the vestments, those clothing that denoted that they belonged to Roman high offices, away from the Roman false judges, and gave it to the Christians as a symbol of their authority, so that everybody throughout the emperor can see these overseers and elders represent the authority of the empire, gives them the mitre, gives them the the stole, gives them the chasuble, these ancient ideas of the priest or the, the overseer or the elder operating in the place of God's law. And so even if you in your mind right now think of vestments as being sacerdotal, relating to worship, remember that the original purpose here was to denote that the Christians, like Jesus promised, shall be the judges of the men of the earth. And so what we're looking at is really an absence of history. Too many people today think history and what came before has no value to them because there's nothing to learn from them. And yet when we give up history, we give up the rich culture that actually Christianity produced. And then we begin to think that our recent history has some type of value. Uh, The way that a man or a woman dresses in our year, right, changes uh, so radically. You know, what's in target this year will be very different than what's in target 10 years from now. But that kind of radical transformation of how we dress 
creates these new normal social identities. Have you ever took a look and look back at how uh, men today dress, right? It's a, an evolution of strange secular ideas. You know, the, the necktie, the, the sports jacket, uh, <laughs> the, the coat, the, all the things that we put together that, that are not necessarily utilitarian, um, but are very strange compared to the first 2,000 years of the church's history. I mean, you have, in the evolution of how people dress, a radical shift into uh, neckties and tubular shirts and all kinds of weird things that changed very rapidly. But we, in our day and age, have fallen into this idea that this is the new normal. There was a liturgist, his name was Reverend Percy Durham. He was of the Church of England in the early 20th century. And he said something that I think is rather funny. He said that at present time, it is man's fancy to dress hideously. And he does this fun experiment where he describes a man in a suit. He says a man dresses himself in five tubes, right? Two for the arms, one for the head, two for the legs, right? Five strange tubes around him. And when he goes out, he puts another tube on top of his head that's not really useful because he has to put an umbrella over this tube on his head. And that we have become so accustomed to these absurd fashions of the past 100 years that we don't recognize how undignified and ridiculous we are. So we have put our recent innovations at a place of the new standard, and so that we have no memory of what you said, Andrea, of the history. And so when we come to a liturgical church and we see the man up there wearing a robe with a rope tied around his, his waist and this piece of garment that's colorful hanging over the top of him, we think, how silly does this man in a dress look while we... <laughs> are dressed in our novel dress that's only a few decades old uh, without realizing that for millennia, men dressed in a way that was a standard of dignity that reflected not their personal taste, their personal ideal, but pointed to the glory or the radiance of God. Fashion-wise for women, whose idea was it to have them in these high heel shoes, which are guaranteed to wreck their back and make it so that within a very short period of time, it was hard to walk at all and carrying their purse and everything else. You see, those are as much part of our, our dress that if you don't have those things, that somehow or other you're not properly attired. So we all have vestments. They just have different dates associated with them. And sometimes most people can't figure out why they do them. <laughs> if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, there's vestments there, right? There's the high priest investments. There are Adam and Eve investments. The God has always had a standard of how to dress people. Uh, in the New Testament church, there's literally verses where St. Paul is asking his disciples to bring him a tunic, right? Bring him a special type of clothing that he had there at another city. So again, this question of vestments or, or ritual wearing of clothing is not so much of do we choose one tradition or the other, but does the Bible have a standard? Does the Bible speak to the significance of how we dress? And more so than debating whether or not we should wear Greek vestments or Roman vestments or anything like that, I think it comes down to a more deep issue, and that is the issue of Gnosticism, the idea that somehow our bodies, our physicalities, are less important or maybe not even important at all to the spiritual right? That somehow we are spiritual beings 
And therefore, what really matters is our right theology, our right emotions, our right philosophy, our internal feelings or a commitment to an idea, rather than all these external things, right? I'm sure we've all met Christians who will emphasize, you know, it's not how we dress or how we talk, how we behave, what we do. It's how it makes us feel or a matter of the heart. And those things uh, can be true to an extent. You don't want to have an overemphasis on the externals. But Christ came in a human body, human vesture. Christ died in a human body. He resurrected in a human body. And the human body ascended into the heavenlies. Therefore, we should understand that the human body is a part of salvation. We confess in our, our creed, we confess that this body will be resurrected. There's a certain dignity to the physicality. And I find that what a lot of the opposition to ritualism is really just a veiled opposition to the reality of our physical beings. They really hate the physical and are become obsessed overly with a Gnostic view of spiritualism. And part of the Gnostic view allows you to do whatever you want with the physical because it doesn't really matter anyway. Right. You know, who cares if you are sexually immoral and have dishonored your body with uh, premarital sex or adultery, if you've dishonored your body with what you've eaten or, or what you drink, or if you've dishonored your body with how you market, you know, Gnosticism gives license to say it doesn't really matter because this is not really what God's concerned about. It's the short-sighted idea of salvation that what's really important is making a confession and getting to heaven. When God says, I came to save all of creation, to make all things new, and that includes redeeming the body for his purposes. Adam and Eve were made from the dirt with human bodies. They were not floating spirits in the garden. God's plan of salvation has always included this physical element. And because modern man, and this would include the humanism that has infiltrated the church, is so self-centered and self-absorbed, as Rush Dooney says in a lecture I listened to that interestingly was entitled Ritual, he said, man is much more concerned that God hears him than that he hears from God, which I think is a pretty profound way to say we're antinomian by and large because we've taken the first two-thirds of the Bible where God is very specific on what you should do, how you should do it, when you should do it, who's allowed to do it, who's not allowed to do it, the specific times these things should be done, and we've just, that doesn't matter anymore. So we've basically said, God, you should be happy with the way we do things rather than finding the way we do things in terms of what the scripture lays out. And a lot of this mischaracterization is pointed to Jesus' work, right? So they say, oh, of course, in the Old Testament, God was concerned with the externals. He was concerned with ceremonial purity. He was concerned with a temple. He was concerned with sacrifices. But now that Jesus has come, you know, he's taken all of those physical superficialities and undone them. Now it's really about the heart and the Holy Spirit coming and changing the world internally. And I think that's a gross mischaracterization of what Jesus has accomplished. Because at the time of Christ's life here in the middle of Judea, he was 
at the height of the ceremonial system, right? We have a, a second great temple. We have inside this temple the active priesthood. We have the addition of non-prescribed holy days, right? Like the the new Purim or the idea of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. These ideas that were not specifically given in the Holy Scripture, but were celebrated as feasts and memorials by Christ and his disciples. Jesus, at his advent, was exposed to the most ceremony, the most priestly identity, uh, the additions of man, of songs, of music, everything that would be external and ritualistic, whether it was Hebrew or Roman, was present at the time in the life of Christ. Meaning that if we were to see Christ as this ritual-hating somebody trying to destroy all of the idols and uh, destroy all of the, the rituals of this culture, then you would expect Christ, who lives in this culture of ritualization, to speak against it, right? To speak against all of the ceremonialism and ritualism. But the fact is, and we can look at Christ when he turns over the tables, Christ is a man who protects ritual. Think about what he says when he turns the tables over for the money changers, that my father's house was meant to be a house of prayer, and you have made it into a what? A den of thieves. Because what they had done is they had taken all of the ritual purity, the holiness, the inner and outer purity that belonged to the temple, and replaced it with things of the world, of commercialism. They have added in their money changers and lenders and selling and buying that would be a great time in the history of the Gospels for Jesus to say, stop praying this many times. Stop wearing these things. For Christ to say, uh, the temple doesn't matter. I'm going to get rid of all of ceremonialism. It would be a good time for Christ to speak against holidays. You know, when he came to the Festival of Lights, it would be a good time for Christ to say, God does not want man-made holidays. It would have been a great time. Except Jesus himself submits to all of these rituals, goes through them and fulfills them, to show how he is going to renew humanity. And I think that can really get lost with, with most people who see Christ as somebody's destroying ritual. Right, and again, it goes back to what does fulfillment mean? Fulfillment does not mean put an end to and destroy. It means to put into force. That's right, to make it full, right? If you have an empty glass of water, to fulfill the glass of water, you fill it up all the way to the brim and overflow it. That's what Christ has done to ritual. He has taken all of the man-made parts out of it and made it completely a divine thing. And that sometimes is difficult for people to get their mind around as well. Because what uh, Christ has done in the New Testament church is he is saying all of these things that were once shadows, right? You could only see part of, have now come to full light. And so if in the Old Testament, only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies and gaze upon the presence of God, now that shadow has been illuminated by the light of Christ. The curtain rent open, and now the ritual has come to live inside of you. The, the presence of God has come to live inside the entire world. Everything will be made into God's perfected rituals. And then instead of saying, as you pointed out, do away with it, now when these various rituals are performed, they look back to their fulfillment in Christ. So it isn't that he came and you just had to been there 22,000 years ago to get it, and now in 2019 
it doesn't matter anymore. That's why we read our Bible, and that's why we see the continuity between the directives to Israel and the fact that the church is the Israel of God, and there's that continuity. That's right. And, and as a, a thought experiment, and I don't mean this to, to any way slam any churches, but think of, of Christ coming to the temple, and think of Christ coming to a modern, maybe mega church or evangelical church. What rituals would he see emphasized? He would see that the things of the world— uh, music defined by secular terms, dress defined by secular terms, uh, speech patterns and way of speaking defined by secular terms, choice of verses and subjects and, and pastoral themes chosen by the world and brought into the church. How is that very different than what happened with the temple in the first century? The people of, the, of Jerusalem had gone out and got commercialized <laughs> versions of music, of selling, of ideas of the temple. It all been things of the world brought into the house of the Lord. They were not refusing to do rituals. Christ destroyed them because their new rituals were not based on the standards given by God, but by the standards of the world. And so when we look at a Christian liturgy, uh, whether you're like my tradition, where you're Anglican, is your tradition based upon the scripture? And while it's probably not very popular these days to talk about scripture proofs, you can go through the, the Anglican liturgy and find the, each verse that is said by the priest, whether it's during the, the reading of the scripture, whether it's during the confession, whether it's during the Holy Communion part of the service, each part is just lifted word for word from the scripture, rearranged into a liturgy. Is your intention of your ritual to do that? Are you going back to the scripture saying, all right, where is God speak to me in this part of my life, this ritual that I do every day, and allowing the word of God to form and to flow into what you're doing? I think the trend today is impromptu prayer as if it's more holy, but one of my favorite collections is the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. And they're beautiful, they're well thought out, and when you actually pray the, these prayers, you're lifted up. It's as though you become more than you are on your own. It's that the collective concerns of people who came before you, because the authors of those prayers are no longer here on earth. They're in the church in heaven. I, I think that we've gone away from the idea of let's make things beautiful and proper and not just done on the fly. Right, right. Extemporaneous prayer has been elevated to be a special prayer. And that's not just true of religion, right? Uh, it's true of all forms of human expression. When a culture moves away from standards like the Bible or standards like submission to God, then they're going to fill those vacuums with worship of their self, right? So if you look at any fashion magazine today, right? They're, they're praised for being unique expressions of your own personality. How often have you heard, you know, this one is really me. I feel like this one is expressing who I am truly inside. And the consequence of that type of thinking is what's given us a love of homosexuality and transgenderism. It's what's created this independent antinomian spirit inside of modern Americans, they have taken away any standard and put their self as the arbiter. And the way they do that is by saying that there are some areas that are adiaphora, right? That are neutral. 
But if we're good Christians and we believe that God speaks to every area of life and we know that there is no neutrality, well, all rituals must submit to God and his word that speaks to all things. Right. You know, we just came off the 75th anniversary of D-Day and there were many ceremonies that were done in Normandy. Officials from the U.S. visited Great Britain and France and there were state dinners and there were protocols that were maintained and some of them are quite old in that they didn't just make them up last week going, what shall we do? And I think back to the fact that our Lord was not averse to pageantry in as much as what we call Palm Sunday was his entering into Jerusalem as a king. It was the triumphal entry. And as a matter of fact, he was criticized for his parade. And he told those who were criticizing him, you know what? If these folks didn't do it, the rocks and the stones would. That's right. Because that's really the point um, of the resurrection was that the beauty of creation was being renewed. Uh, N.T. Wright, a, a famous uh, New Testament scholar from the University of St. Andrew, talks about how if you read the Psalms, there's a promise in the Psalms that doesn't match our theology. Right? So you read Genesis, and you see the fall of man, and all of creation is cursed. But then when you read the Psalms, there are all these promises and, and spectacular descriptions of all the earth, the flowers and the beauty of them, and how good they are. And it's kind of a juxtaposition because as good uh, Reformation Christians, we know that everything is not good. But Christ has come to fulfill the promise of those Psalms, to restore the beauty of all things, that a flower before the death and resurrection of Christ is now different than a flower after the death and resurrection of Christ. Because the crown of creation has now begun the process of renewing all things including the visible, physical, and visual. And so not only should that apply to our standard of, of how we personally dress, but in our rituals, we should be seeking to fulfill those promises of the Psalms that, that the creation would be once restored, that it would be better than the Garden of Eden. And so putting that into the context of what Christ has come to do broadens our view of the Great Commission. Not only are we called to come and to speak the good news that Christ come and you may come to heaven, but the power of the kingdom is that every piece, every atom, every part of creation is being made beautiful. And that's going to be uh, something that human beings are going to feel a need and desire to fulfill, right? So the reason why the military and the police and the post office follow these uniformed dress codes and follow these uh, bureaucratic processes for burying people and commemorating days is because inside of you, there is this groaning, like those rocks, this groaning for creation to be made new, perfect, and restored. And so all of our human actions are trying desperately to reorder the chaos that sin caused and to put things right back in order and fulfill the promises of the Psalms to make things good. Indeed. And, you know, it's an interesting thought. Christ's triumphal entry didn't happen after his resurrection. It happened before his crucifixion. And so right smack in the middle of that is 
the week prior to his death where what he's doing is letting people know our side wins. That's why he enters in triumph. And then what looks like a setback turns out not to be a setback at all. And because so much of our lives, our daily lives have been secularized, the only parades, the only pageantry that most people experience is maybe on the 4th of July, maybe on a national holiday. But sadly, the current parades are things like gay pride parades or parades in honor of a woman's right to kill her offspring. And I really think we might consider bringing back Christian pageantry to the public square in terms of unashamedly declaring our allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that, that pageantry speaks to the dignity of, of what we're doing as a church. It speaks to the historical continuity. I think that one of the things that our culture has failed to do, and I speak as somebody who's under 30 years old, is we fail to pass on that there is a view of the world that doesn't change, right? There's a, there's a standard that doesn't change and that we have communicated very poorly, the church of the last 100 years, that there is a kingdom that's visible, that's marching on, that's going to pass on to the next generation because we've undercut the message of the gospel with ourselves and our own personal uh, identities. We have allowed you know, our personal taste, our personal affections, our, our own ideas of, of what the good life is to go against the idea that the church has been growing and marching and developing and is ready to be passed on to the next generation. Instead, we've taught next generation that they get to define what the church will look like. And you can see this happening more and more rapidly with each generation. Even something as simple as your Bible translation right? There are rituals that are involved in reading your scripture, right? So there is the ritual of reading according to a lectionary. The church, since the time of uh, St. Gregory the Great, who John Calvin called the last great pope, uh, set this idea of regularly breaking up the Old and New Testament into ritualized readings. You're going to read this passage on this Sunday, according to the calendar for this particular reason. And Christians were formed uh, according to the ritualized reading of the scripture. Well, today, the, d- the style of devotion is completely opposite. Don't tell me which chapter and verse to read. I'm going to go by my own devotion. I'm going to pick what verse I ever fall to, even if it's just me opening the Bible and pointing my finger at the middle and picking my favorite psalm or picking whatever verse makes me feel good instead of allowing the word of God to shape you. That's the type of ritualism we're talking about. Are we allowing the word of God, to speak to us as something that's transcendent of us. Therefore, our submission to it is ritualistic. We're following its order and pattern rather than turning ritual upside down and making a matter of personal preference. So in Bible translation, right, we we talk about uh, not only the lectionary, but the meaning of the words. Are we allowing the elevated language of of the King James or of the old English that was written in a way that was meant to preserve this language for generations to come. Uh, Rushdie points out that in 1611, when they published the King James, nobody spoke like that. It was already an antiquated ritual way of speaking, but it was meant to preserve a culture of that time of the received tradition of translation. Today, 
We have a new translation published every six months to match the culture of this world. We want to speak to a new generation. Therefore, there's the skateboarder Bible. There's the, the army veteran Bible. There's the Bible for girls. And what we've done is we have turned the ritual again upside down, allowing people to choose how they want to read the scripture and how they want to be formed according to their preferences rather than allowing the standard to form them. Well put. I think it would be a great idea for those who are listening to examine the rituals and the pageantry and the vestments of your own life. What does it say when a woman of any age goes out in public with jeans that look like she's just been mauled by someone who didn't like her or a wild animal? What's that vestment saying about who she is? What does it say when instead of appreciating your maturity and the fact that you've been around for decades, you try your hardest to look like someone much younger because somehow or other that's more valuable than the hoary head that the Bible talks about. And I think if we start looking at life in terms of what we value and then how we present ourselves to God, not so much just to other people, but to God, and recognize that we're always in the court. We're always standing before the king. It might just alter the way we conduct ourselves and the way we present ourselves to the world. That's right. And it's not as though this is something that Christians don't already do. We allow our actions to be formed by our context. There is no Christian who is respectable, who goes into a courtroom and stands before a judge without a necktie, without <laughs> his button shirt, without his you know best presentation. Why do we have such respect for the state, the court, and their robes, while we seem to forget that those that dignity is owed to the King of Kings and to his church? I think that it speaks to the competition that's happening here, that Folks don't realize the battle for the robes that run the world, whether it's the robes of the university or the robes of the church or the robes of the state. It's that ritual and formality that forms who's in control. And that when the church is being attacked for holding a place of honor or stature, we shouldn't look to that as something that it's good, that we're purifying or going back to the original church, but see that for what it is. It's an attack from the state or the other spheres on the authority of God himself. Yes. So we have a long way to go, but I think, as usual, we can look to the scriptures as the roadmap as to how to get there. That's right. And it's not very difficult for Christians to see what does a dignified liturgy look like in the Bible. There's a church service given to us in the book of Revelation. There are church services and temple demonstrations given to us throughout the Old Testament. But what's most important is that we talk about heart issues. We balance it according to the incarnation that we look at. Are we respecting our bodies and our souls? Are we looking at them as one unified thing? And do our rituals reflect our commitment to that resurrection identity? So as we look at the very, very detailed instructions for the construction of the temple and now, as we look at ourselves as the temple of the Holy Spirit, there should be no less care and concern and obedience in caring for the temple now 
as the temple then. Right. And we should also remember that the temple was never uh, meant to be something that you worshipped, that everything the temple pointed to a future reality. Like think about uh, the priest and what he wore right above where his heart is, what we call the chest, right? He wore something that represented the authority of the temple because that's where the presence of God was. And he took stones and he put them upon his chest and he wore these strange garments to reflect this relationship that he had with the temple. Uh, That's basically the origin of vestments. The priest was by these physical signs demonstrating, not that he had some special authority, but that he was representing the image of God. And you can see this uh, in the New Testament too, where they describe uh, Jerusalem as the city covered in stones. But most importantly, you can see that picture of stones in front of your heart in description of what salvation is. Your heart of stone, right, is transformed into something else. So in the Old Testament, where they put the stones on the outside in front of the heart as a picture of visibly what's happening, here in the New Testament, we dress up the Christians as the new image of God. The dignity that was once belonging to the priest in the temple now belongs to all of you because you are now all priests of the new temple with the one intercessor who goes into heaven before you. So if the priest who was a shadow of the dignity of Christ has now been transformed into the priesthood of all believers, how much more should we pay attention to how the world sees you than we did for those Old Testament priests? And I think that's a good place to end, although I have a feeling we could keep talking about this for quite some time, but this is the end of our appointed time. Listeners, I appreciate the feedback we've been getting, how many of you say that you look forward to this podcast and it's informative and uplifting. Continue to write to us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, giving your comments along with suggestions as to topics we might discuss in the future. Thanks again, Steve. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.